and their crew, thanks for serving there. So, well, as uh, has been pointed out, it is the first day, uh, first Sunday of 2020. And uh, again, whoever thought that we'd be here? If, if you're familiar with uh, the movie Back to the Future 2, that was 2015, you know? Think about the, ch- the changes they tried to portray. It's a little different reality than what was there, right? Um, <clears throat> but perhaps you have some resolutions, some things you want to accomplish, some directions you'd like to go. And we do as a church as well. I just want to highlight a few. You'll be hearing about these in the, the next few weeks. But uh, first of all, from just a physical plant standpoint, uh, you know, God has given us this building. We want to take care of it. This summer we hope to actually re um, What's the word? Reside the building. Um, so we kind of giving you the, the price tag for that. And, and, you know, again, to take care of that, you'll be hearing about that. And, and Lord willing, even if we raise even a little more funds, we, we're going to put some new doors in our south entrance, uh, glass doors so you can see out them completely and uh, have a opportunity for people to push a button if they're, uh, you know, uh, handicapped or, or just need an extra hand to have the door open. So those are things we'd like to accomplish from a physical plant standpoint. A um, few goals we have as far as outreach. Uh, we're hoping to send a team to Haiti in, in May. And so if you're interested in that, you may just want to see Chris Bailey. Chris, raise your hand real quickly. He is our official Haiti representative, and uh, we'll be hearing more about that. But one of the things we also want to continue to do is be God's witness here as a church and also in our neighborhood. So we've talked about being good neighbors. And let's continue with that. Maybe seeds that you plant this winter may reap a, uh, a harvest come this spring or this summer as far as relationships with neighbors and having an opportunity to share the gospel. But <clears throat> now, here's a, a confession. I don't have a Facebook account. But I look over my wife's shoulder on her Facebook account, and she oftentimes accuses me, you know, of, of stalking people or whatever. I don't know what that's all about. But, you know, what I noticed, what I noticed as the year, you know, went from 2019 to 2020, is a lot of people talking about, oh, this is going to be the greatest year ever. It's going to be fantastic. And I'm kind of going, well, what makes you think that? I, it's kind of curmudgeon I understand that, right? But I'm going, why? You know? Is it because 2019 was such a terrible year or is it just wishful thinking? I like what Paul said. Because God's mercies are new every morning, that's a great reason to think that 2020 is going to be a great year. Uh, maybe people just like the equilibrium of 2020. I don't know. You know, it's just kind of, you know, the next time that's going to happen is going to be 2121. I don't know. But whatever plans you've made, whatever resolutions you've made, here is a question. And I think it's a great question for us to be grounded in as we kind of get going for this year. What resolution, what intentions, what plans do you have to give priority to your two most important relationships? Number one, your God. What resolutions, priorities have you made to grow in fidelity and love towards Him? And if you're married, number two, what resolution do you have to grow in love and fidelity to your spouse? You'll see how this is going to connect here with our sermon today. But those are the two most important relationships you have. What are your plans to grow 
in those areas. Grow in love. Grow in fidelity. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. We've been, we started it uh, last year actually. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack your Bible open there. But we're going to look into a conversation that Jesus originally starts out having with his disciples. But then some people overhear him. And they start to sneer what Jesus has to say. But Jesus, being rich in mercy and wanting to be redemptive, even engages these people who are listening in and are sneering at him. So before we get there, would you let me pray for us? And then we'll dig in to what Jesus has to say to us today. So Lord Jesus, it is the year of our Lord, 2020. You are the Lord of history, and you're in charge of it. But in this 2020, if you don't come, Lord, we still want to be found faithful, loving you, loving our spouses, loving others. And so would you do work in our hearts and draw us to yourself and help, help us to hear what you have to say to us today. We're grateful for your word. It's for us. It's good news. And help us to respond in our hearts. Lord Jesus, it's your name I pray these things. Amen. So, uh, the verses I've got chosen out are verses 16 through 18, but I'm actually going to back it up to verse 13, because it will make more sense if we actually start there. So again, this is Jesus' words starting out to his disciples. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so we're coming back to Luke. Big picture here. Jesus is on his farewell tour. He's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and rise from the dead. Just as we've been singing about. To purchase our salvation. And he is teaching his disciples. <laughs> Again, he's, you know, we talked about kingdom shrewdness at the beginning of this. To manage things, to manage possessions, and have the right priorities. No one can serve two masters. You can't do it. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay? Jesus is saying this to his followers. But these religious experts, the ones who think they're the gold standard for spirituality, they turn around and they sneer at Jesus. And in their hearts, they love money. They don't like what Jesus is saying. 
But Jesus truthfully, and I believe lovingly, tells them the truth about their messed up priorities. And here's the truth, folks. Every person Jesus meets in the Scriptures needs Him, whether they know it or not. And that includes the Pharisees. And I believe he's trying to reach them because they don't know that they actually need him. And sometimes we actually find ourselves identifying sometimes more with the Pharisees than the sinners that Jesus is a friend of, if you will. But everyone needs them. Everyone has messed up priorities. But specifically towards them, they loved money. They put up appearance before men, before doing what is right in God's eyes. And God knew their hearts. This is idolatry. This is having wrong priorities, and it is detestable. If you want to listen to the sermon we preached previously, it's on November 24th on our website. But this is Jesus, who is bringing the kingdom of God. This is God's promised Messiah, and he knows all men's hearts. And so he wants to address their hearts. And he goes in an interesting direction. So here we are, the verses we're going to look at today. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easy for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, here's my question. Because as I'm, I was preparing to, to address these, these verses, I'm going, why is, this, why is this here? Why does Jesus choose to say what he says in these three verses? Because it doesn't seem quite apparent at, at first glance. And honestly, I was tempted to skip over it and say, oh, the next section is just easier. I can, I can unpack that easier. But I'm also convinced that God's Word always has something that's purposeful. He has something to say that He was trying to say to His original hearers to address their hearts. He also has something to say to us. And so there are three truths. There are three verses here. There are three truths. And they're all going to be expressed in one word. One word for every verse. A reality that Jesus is bringing. Number one, in verse seven, verse 16, majesty. Majesty. Let me read it again. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing its way into it. What Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, to these religious experts, and to us even, as far as, as, far as salvation history, is a new era is here. It is the kingdom of God. A kingdom that's not a physical kingdom, it's not a geographical kingdom, it's a kingdom that takes root in the hearts of men and women. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the last prophet, if you will, of the law. And he is the transition point between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's calling people to prepare for the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is coming. It's now here. Jesus, the kingdom of God, is here. It's being preached. 
It's being proclaimed. Literally, the verb says it's being good newsed. It's out there, folks. It's good news for people because God has sent his king, his Messiah, and now the law needs to be understood in light of who he is. If you're with us during, during, um, December, we preached a series called Christ or Christmas in Genesis. Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 39, you know, you look into the Old Testament scriptures, into the law, because you believe that in them you have life. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees again. But those things point to me. It's about me, guys. So stop living a, a life of dead rules and regulation, of keeping the law, of keeping the rules, because the law has no life in itself, per se. Understand in the light of, understand it in who the light of who Jesus is. The kingdom is here. Majesty, it's here. Now, look at this last phrase of, of of verse 16. And everyone is forcing their way into it. And everyone is forcing their way into it. That is a difficult saying. What does that mean, Jesus? Now, there are no shortage of people who have sought to control, if you will, the kingdom of God or the church for their own purposes. We could say that people are forcing their way into it because they want to control it. Okay, we can look on the world history. You look at the book of Acts and the Sanhedrin tried to control the early church by telling, commanding them not to preach in Jesus' name. You can look at Constantine, and this is not a judgment, but he, he, had, he said he had a vision saying to, to conquer in this name, in Jesus' name. We can look at the state-run churches in, in Europe that many of people came over from the old country to the new countries because they didn't want to be subject to what the state church said, basically, which was under their own, you know, own interest. And even today in China, what's happening there? I don't know if you've been watching the news, but state-run state churches, basically a church, they're asking them to to register with the government, okay? And then if you want to come in, you have to submit to facial recognition technology. They take your fingerprints, they take a picture of your, your face, they want to control that. And that is a real issue out there. I don't know that it's what Jesus is saying here. Because everyone is not forcing their way into the kingdom of God. I didn't see anyone knock anyone over to get into church today. I mean, it'd be nice to think that we're that popular, but we're not, okay? Um, it's not... Seems it's not what the scripture seems to be teaching. It doesn't seem to be our faith experience. So, I am no one's grammarian here, but I'm going to try and, and help you understand. There's a different understanding, perhaps, if we understand the verb forcing their way into it. See, it's 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 translated in our scriptures in the in the present active indicative, if you will. But the mood is actually what's called the middle voice, which can have a passive form of it. So, read it like this. The kingdom of God is here and and everyone or all are being forced into it. All are being forced into it. Now what does that mean? Cuz not everyone we don't see all of, you know, Rochester shoved into this room, do we? And by the way, the kingdom of God is not a, a church building. So I'm not saying that at all. 
But what I am saying, I think what Jesus is saying here is this. The kingdom of God is now here, and all are being forced to deal with it. It's here. Now are you going to deal with it? Are you going to deal with its king, with its claims? On the positive note, it's open to all. Whosoever will. It's not just for the frozen chosen, the, you know, the sanctified few, because that's what the Pharisees thought they were, and they were complaining because Jesus was eating with sinners, right? On the other hand, it has kind of, and I don't think it is negative, but it's, it's, it's forceful. You have to make a choice. The kingdom of God is here. The king is here. Now how you respond to it. How will you respond to its king and his claims? Claims like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman comes to the Father except through me. Will you surrender to his majesty? Or will you continue to do things on your own, on your own terms? So, the kingdom of God is here. Majesty. You've got to deal with it. Number two, continuity. Continuity, verse 17. It is easier for the kingdom of heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Yes, the new kingdom is here, the new king is here, but it doesn't change God's righteous standard. It doesn't change what he has required. It doesn't change his character. It doesn't change his word or his righteousness. Jesus is not here to negate the law or negate God's word. Rather, he's here to fulfill it. He's here to fulfill it because we can't. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out to these Pharisees. You're unable to do this. Jesus will say this of himself in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In our passage, what he's trying to express is that it's easier for heaven and earth to change than for anything to change out of God's word, God's character. And frankly, folks, this should be a great encouragement to us. This should be a great encouragement to us because God remains righteous. He remains holy. His character does not change. However... With the kingdom of God, it is tempered by his love and his grace. God fulfills his own righteousness in coming as a man, in going to the cross and fulfilling all righteousness because we cannot do it. We can't do it ourselves. Well, that's one of the purposes of the law. Did you know that? If you read it in Galatians, it's there to convict us of sin. It's to say, yeah. This is God's standard, and you're falling short. Hooray, that's great news. Actually, it stinks, doesn't it? But it makes us aware that we need someone or something greater than ourselves, And that's where the gospel is good news. That's where Jesus is good news. Here's the problem, though. Again, Jesus is dealing with a group of men who are convinced of their own goodness, who are convinced of their own self-righteousness. And you know how they do it? They take God's word and they twist it. They contort it 
to say what they want it to say so they can live the life how they want to live it. And they've deceived themselves that they're pleasing God. What a terrible place to be. So the last word, and where I really want to bring, I guess, application today, is fidelity. Fidelity means to be faithful. If you are familiar with anyone who's a Marine, their, their standard or their, their motto is Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. It's better said of God than the Marines. But it's true. Fidelity. And here's what's happening. The Pharisees as a group who should be upholding God's law are truncating it. They're twisting it. They're being unfaithful. They're being detestable. Because what they're doing is taking God's word and looking for an excuse to be unfaithful to their spouses. What Jesus is addressing here is a group of religious men who've taken God's word and twisted it and looking for a reason to divorce and do an upgrade in their spouse. Okay? This is Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm just going to read verse 1. If you read through all the way through verse 4, uh, you'll kind of get the full context. It says this, If a man marries a woman and who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent or literally unclean about her, and he doesn't, there's not a command to do this, but it says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And then the rest of the context talks about, and then he goes and marries another man. And he goes to marry another man. And at the end, he can't, she can't come back after those things implode and remarry the man she married at first. It's an abomination. But here's the thing. The Pharisees look at this as more of a command. If you find something indecent in your wife, then divorce her. Give her a certificate of divorce, and then you can marry. You can upgrade. You can get your trophy wife or whatever you're looking for. And that that sounds despicable, but you know what? I hear that even in our own society. It's horrible. They're looking to find something indecent, unclean. And that meant even a burnt meal. You see how they're truncating God's word? They're taking it and looking for a reason, and they're saying, we're doing this lawfully. We're doing this according to God's word. It's okay with God because I'm keeping his word. They're taking the letter of the law, and that very loosely, as an opportunity to become selfish, to indulge their own lust, their own ambition. And, you know, it's not just with men, but the truth of the matter is, in that society, men were in control of most of that, and it was about satisfying themselves. This is what was happening. This is what Jesus is trying to address. Now, let me say this before I go on any farther. What I have to say about divorce today is not going to be all that the Scripture says about divorce. I'm not looking to develop a whole theology of it. So I'm not going to be talking about what's permissible, what's not permissible. I know this is a very tender issue, and it has hit many of us. I don't think there's anyone in this room who hasn't been affected by divorce. And its consequences are devastating. But what Jesus is trying to address here is the very nature of divorce and where it comes from, okay? 
Jesus has a similar conversation in Matthew 19, verses 7 through 9. And this is what happens. He's asked, Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? (laughs) It's not a command. It's all if statements. But Jesus says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your, your hearts were hard. That's why he permitted it. But it was not in this way from the beginning. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Here's Jesus' point. The reason for divorce is hardness of heart. The reason for divorce is hardness of heart. And it manifests itself in many ways. It can be selfishness, unwillingness to consider the needs of your spouse, abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, verbal. It could be criticism and comparison, constantly finding fault in that person. Neglect and negligence. <laughs> yeah, you're married now. You, you crossed the finish line, and, and now you just kind of let it go, you know. If I told you I loved you at the, at the altar. If anything changes, I'll tell you later. That's real good. That's real good uh, marriage building. Infidelity. Not just not being a one man woman or one woman man, but infidelity being untrue as far as failure to love. Failure to love. So often the hardness of heart comes to fruition because we fail to forgive. We fail to love that person. I was having a conversation with one of my pastor friends yesterday at the gym and we were talking about this passage. He said, yeah, you know, the truth of the matter is every one of us can come up for a reason for divorce, right? Because we can find something wrong with our spouse to justify getting out of that marriage. But it's hardness of heart. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is trying to address. Trying to show the Pharisees and show us. And then, just the whole, on reverse, the nature of marriage, period. And I'm going back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. The man said, Now this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man from his rib, remember. And that is why the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is not just poetry. It's reality. It's reality. This person is now a part of your family. It's the person you get to choose to be your spouse. Till death do you part. And the two become one. They become a part of yourself. And part of that is accepting who they are. And it should be, if you're married, your spouse should be your best attempt to love somebody. Should be your best attempt to love someone. Your best attempt to be faithful to someone. And divorce does violence to that union. It dissolves that fidelity. 
and perhaps the most important thing to God about divorce and remarriage and, and all what Jesus is trying to address in marital fidelity is marriage is to reflect the relationship between God and his people. Marriage is to reflect the relationship between God and his people. And the Apostle Paul does a great job of kind of fleshing this out. This is Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 28. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church now the truth of the matter is that passage is a bunch of sermons in itself, right? I'm not looking to unpack that. All I'm trying to focus in on is that there is a, there is a mirror between marriage, between a man and a woman, and God and, his, and, and Christ and his relationship to the church, his people. If you go through the whole Bible, which I just had an and I'm not boasting here. I'm not boasting. I'm just telling you, every year I read through the whole Bible. And God so often portrays himself as the bridegroom with his bride, his people. That is the, the image that he puts up there. And when divorce takes place, that image is marred. That picture gets a black eye. That's why Jesus cares so much about, about marriage. That's why it's important. That's why when I do premarital counseling with any couple, I always talk about, you know what? You are reflecting the relationship between God, between Christ and his church. That's important. Unfortunately, so often in the scripture, God is rebuking his bride for being unfaithful, for being... <laughs> A harlot, if you will, an adulteress. And it's, it's pretty harsh language. In fact, if you read the, the letter, uh, the book of Hosea, that's what the, the story is about. God is a jilted husband who says, you need to return to me. And he does so with kindness, but he also does so with, with forthrightness. And sometimes the truth of the matter is we as his people are being unfaithful. We're being unfaithful to him because we love other things above him or we love other things to the exclusion of him. That's why James will say in his letter, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You are being unfaithful. If you're loving the world and the things of this world. So here's, here's where I want to land today. Here's where I want to land as far as just resolutions as we're heading into 2020. 
What are you doing? What are you doing? First of all, if you're married, to strengthen your fidelity to your spouse. Not just maintain, but to grow and nurture that and care for. And that might be something like a regular date night every, you know, every week or every few times a month. It might mean going possibly to a marriage conference. Uh, Family Life Today as a weekend to remember. There are going to be a few up here in, in the cities in March. You might want to check that out. You can check that out on familylife.org. Um, or maybe you need some tuning up to do. Maybe you need to go see a counselor and help sort through some things that, you know, and even if your marriage is good, maybe even going to a counselor might make it even better. Okay? Or just do something together. But what are you doing? What are you doing with your relationships that should be your best attempt to love in 2020? Make that a priority. And some of you are going, that's great, Pastor, but I'm not married. I'm in middle school. I'm in, you know, whatever. That's great. Here's what I want to say to you. Develop habits of sexual purity and habits of fidelity to reserve that part of your life for your future spouse. Because it will pay dividends down the line. But even more so, you have to know that that part of your life even intersects with your relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, God says, you know, you know, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So, you know, submit yourselves to God in that area. And so this leads to the next part, this next resolution. What are you doing in 2020 to increase your love, increase your fidelity towards the one who is the lover of your soul? That is the living God who sent us on the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the rebukes that Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 is, you know, you're doing a lot of great things, but you've lost your first love. What are you doing to continue to make Jesus your first love? What are you doing purposefully to pursue him? Maybe it means setting aside time somehow along the way to be with him. I know if I want to grow in my relationship with Carrie, it usually means we've got to spend time together. Yeah, be in the Bible. And I, okay, earlier I told you I read through the Bible every year. Again, I'm not telling you that to, to pat myself on the back or elevate myself. You know why I do it? It's because every time I read through it, it helps me understand the big picture more and more and more. And I know more about have, having gone through that process many times. So I recommend it. If, you, if you're looking for a process to do that, I'd love to help you out with that. That's great. Maybe you need to read a book that kind of helps you think about things in, in ways you've not thought about God in other ways. Maybe you need to, to journal. Um, maybe you need to listen to a podcast that will help you. But do something. Do something. And it might mean doing something different because sometimes we get in a rut. So do something different than you've, you've normally done. 
But be intentional. Be intentional. Here we are at the beginning of 2020. You have some resolutions. Make priority for the two most important relationships that you have. Your marriage and your God. To grow. To grow in that relationship. And truly, actually even to grow your own heart. It's the first Sunday of the month, and here at the Breen Community Church, we, uh, it's our custom to celebrate the Lord's Supper.